Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Joe Gross is an American music and culture journalist based in Austin, Texas, where he works for the Austin American Statesman Daily Newspaper. With past bylines in Spin, Rolling Stone, The Village Voice, and Washington City Paper, among others, Joe employed his considerable journalistic skill to explore Fugazi's 1993 album, In on the Killtaker. His work has resulted in a deeply intimate and revelatory new book about the record for the popular 33 and a Third series. And so Joe and I recently connected to have our own wide-ranging discussion about Fugazi, In on the Killtaker, and, of course, Joe's book about the same. With in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, and, of course, listeners like you who make flexible monthly pledges at patreon.com slash Control, download episodes, and subscribe to this podcast. This is the 421st episode of Creative Control, featuring Joe Gross discussing my favorite band of all time, Fugazi, with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm good, man. How you doing? I'm very well. It's nice to speak with you. Where Where in the world are you today? I am in Austin, Texas, in a, uh, a disused conference room at my day job at the uh, Austin American Statesman, which is the daily newspaper in Austin, Texas. 
Oh, okay. I didn't realize you were based in Austin. How are things down in Austin these days? Mercifully, in the uh, in the nineties today, rather than one hundred and eight. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm you think I'm kidding? I'm really not. It uh, yeah, it's 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 lovely here. Oh, good. Yeah, we we have had these sporadic heat waves here, where I'm calling you from in Guelph, and uh, the weather is something. It is something else. And I, I was thinking about this because I've done many of these episodes of my show, and invariably when I ask someone how things are going in the city, they don't talk about uh, civic unrest, political circumstances. They just always talk about the weather. I wonder— Weather, weather and traffic, man. That's, what, that's how we roll. Yeah. I get, that's just the what we talk about, isn't it? When I say, hey, how are things in your city, they just—almost everyone talks about the weather, and I find that fascinating. I guess it's the major— <laughs> universal thing we all have to deal with no matter where we live yeah it's you know it's just a good entry into uh into small talk i think if we i think if we started with um you know well i'm deeply disillusioned with the city council but i would sort of <laughs> go off the rails pretty fast <laughs> yeah but that's the kind of stuff that i get to eventually anyway it just always starts with you know it's sunny it's hot it's yeah. rain it's rainy it's <laughs> snowy whatever it's just interesting it's just the immediate i i just have been you know, I do these all the time, so I just was thinking about that the other day. Almost all of them are weather, which is, like I say, you're right, you're right. It's small talk. It's, it's the way no, things it's just, are. it's just kind of there. Yeah, for all of us. It's just there. The weather yeah. is there. Life is there, but we define ourselves by our elements a little bit. That's all I'm getting at, and now the small talk is getting a little intense. Now I All I'm, all I'm saying is you get jacket weather all the time, and we crave it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I've not been to Austin in some time. I've only been there once, actually, now that I think about it. But uh, And maybe like in 2009. And as I recall, it was freakishly hot. Yeah. No, I don't. I mean, I have no, absolutely no idea like what you would do if you were from Canada. I remember many, many years ago uh, when, we, when it legitimately was 108 um, one day during the Austin City Limits Music Festival as part of their ongoing ascent into world domination, into a position of world domination, the Arcade Fire played a set in the middle of the afternoon at the Austin City Limits Music Festival. I remember thinking, one, all of these people are Canadian, and two, they're all wearing black suits, and three, somebody's going to die before <laughs> the end of this set. Right. Like, I don't know if it's going to be a drummer or like a bass player or what somebody, it's just somebody's going down, but they, uh, they handled it well. I was super impressed. Well, I should say that two of the members of Arcade Fire are actually from Texas. So they yes. they are seasoned. They might have been, and then by osmosis, the rest of the band might have gained immunity to the conditions somehow. I don't know. They might have They might have just taken them aside and said, look, just put your T-shirt in the freezer before we go out. <laughs> Trust me on this. <laughs> just tuck it in. We're, well, we're, we're going to get through this. we got about 45 minutes to play. We can do this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad it's uh, relatively comfortable down there, and uh, it's uh, nice to speak with you. I'm a, a fan of your most recent work, In on the Kill Taker. This is a 33 and a third book. Uh, this series, uh, I'm a fan of this series. They've put out what the, what they do, if people don't know, they, they get people like you to write uh, entire small, short, relatively short books uh, that uh, cover the uh, history and maybe cultural significance of any given record. And uh, I think I've maybe summed that up relatively accurately. That's pretty much what they do. Why did you uh, gravitate towards doing a 
a long-form piece on In on the Kill Taker by Fugazi. Well, I have thought about pitching a Fugazi book to them for a number of years. They're the band that I've sort of spent the most time thinking about over the past, I don't know, uh, 30 years or something. I guess it's been about 30 years now that I think about it. The first record came out in 88. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're the band I've sort of thought about the most as, and as I became uh, somebody who writes about music professionally and writes about popular culture professionally. Uh, I engaged their work a couple of times over the years and um, have done so at, at every stage of, of my career. One of the very first record reviews I ever wrote for a high school newspaper was for Steady Diet of Nothing. And uh, it just, you know, I, I never, never got tired of them. And in 2015, I just kind of decided to bite the bullet and uh, pitch a Fugazi record to 33 and a third. But I decided very early in the process that I wanted it to be interview-based. I didn't just want to write a book off the top of my dome about them. And I contacted the band and I essentially said, I, love, I, w- I want to pitch this. I don't want to do it if you can't participate or don't want to. So I just want to know if this is something that you're into and if there are particular records that you would enjoy talking about more than others. I can write about any of them. And I know your catalog forwards and backwards. And But I'm wondering if there are particular records that you have better or worse memory of or anything like that. And um, the band got back to me and said, you can write about whatever you want. We can tell you that we did not have a great time making Steady Diet of Nothing, and that was not a particularly pleasant point in the band's history, but we're perfectly happy to talk about it. So I decided to do Kill Taker because I thought it was at a very interesting moment in the band's career in what became known as alternative rock on a major label level. It came out after the Nirvana explosion, but before in utero and the beginning of sort of the contraction of that market through the back half of of the 90s. Again, on on the major label level, this isn't really reflective of of them or or anything going on in the underground. But it was the, the first Fugazi record that I think a lot of people heard it shipped a massive number of copies and debuted for the first time a Fugazi record debuted on the Billboard Top 200, uh, which was both indicative of a change in the way Billboard did its tallying, relying on SoundScan more than reports from record stores, and reflective of sort of where the culture was in 1993. So it seemed like a good record to tackle. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there for sure. I can see why you you chose this record. Now, you mentioned that the band didn't have a good time making Steady Diet of Nothing, which you illuminate in this book. But in a nutshell, can you explain uh, why uh, they they had a bad experience? This was a bit surprising to me because I have a fondness for that record, and I hadn't really... uh, The songs on that record in particular, I think in my head... After reading the section about it in your book, I thought, you know what? The production is weird on that record. I never really thought about it. But but can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I think they wanted to try. They had made a record. They made their first record with Ted Nicely, who I think is a brilliant producer. They made their second record with John Loader, 
a Margin Walker EP, uh, the brilliant producer and label head uh, in England who ran uh, Southern and was just an all-around kind of an amazing figure who deserves his own book. And uh, they made Repeater with Ted Nicely, and I think for their second full length, they were thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe we can can give it a shot, see how it goes with us producing our, ourselves. And what ended up happening is you have these four guys in what was then a pretty new studio when Inner Ear um, moved to their uh, new space and, and you know also their current space in Northern Virginia. It was a whole brand new studio that they were in for the first time, using for the first time. And the room was unfamiliar and they wanted to, what ended up happening is that you have four guys who already talk everything to death <laughs> and uh, with no sort of fifth or sixth person in the room, sixth if you count their engineer, Don Ziantara, uh, the owner of Inner Ear, you have a situation where it's four guys who talk everything to death and don't really want to make an executive decision. And they, all four of them have described this process this way, that you know, they're you know, sitting there and some guy moves a fader and says, is that okay? And the other guys are like, mm, yes, I think that's fine. And that's a very good way to get a very straightforward read on the songs. That that thing is just one of the driest records ever made. There yeah. is no reverb to be found anywhere. And, you know, the first time you listen to it, you don't really notice it at first. And then it's like, what is going on here? And I distinctly remember listening to that record and say, and thinking like, well, the recording is beautiful, but these reads on the songs are really straightforward and kind of just very, they're just kind of there. And the songs are great. Like they're, uh, they're songs that appeared in their live set for a decade after they were recorded through their entire career. And the songs are all great, but the record itself, I mean, it has a very devout cult following. I know a lot of people who are like, that's my favorite. And, um, <laughs> You know, and I was one of them for a long time. I was like, this is, what, you know, this is what they really sound like. And uh, well, you know, cer certainly, just... certainly as an aspiring musician, I I think I appreciated this, this sort of um, the, I appreciated the dryness, the separation. I could hear what Brendan in particular was doing. I heard the drums very clearly. And but in retrospect, it's it is maybe a little too dry. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's not. And I think I think the performances are good. Uh, they are not great. Hmm. And it was the first time that they had gotten any negative reviews. Um, and I think that was slightly jarring. Uh, you know, I don't think they took, you know, written criticism too terribly seriously. But, you know, if you're used to getting decent review after decent review from people you respect, it, it can, you know, it's a little jarring to see people say, I don't know about this one. Um, and sort of not not be sure why. There's a very funny moment when I was interviewing the four guys, and uh, it's it's in the book 
where Guy is like, we're going to make this record with no reverb and it's, you know, it's just going to be this really straight ahead thing. And then you listen to it and you're like, oh, we made a record with no reverb. <laughs> Yikes. Um, yeah, yeah, I can. And I mean, they, they're pretty forthright about this in this book, which uh, about the, that experience and what led them to, to try to experiment more, I suppose, for lack of a better term, uh, on, sure. on the next record. I want to jump back here to this notion of, of access here. You, wrote, you reached out to the band, uh, gave them sort of carte blanche to pick which era and record they wanted to discuss. They said, whatever you want to do is fine. We just don't have a good feeling about this one record. Did you know these guys before this? Did you, uh, had you ever corresponded not, with them or anything? Not really. I've, you know, I had dealt with Ian uh, Mackay in a professional capacity for years, just in a, like, hey, how you doing? I'd love to talk about this, um, just as a journalist. And I am from the Washington area. Um, I went to school in Virginia. I moved back to Northern Virginia after I graduated. And I knew a lot of people. I, I was friends with a lot of people who were friends of theirs. Right. Um, but I didn't really have a personal relationship with any of them. Um, I met Guy Picciotto for the first time the day before I was set to interview all four of them. I had spoken to Joe Lally, the bass player, for an interview years earlier that uh, yielded some, some interesting stuff. And I wrote Brendan a fan letter once in nineteen ninety something i can't remember what i think it was like 96 and it, I, I i can tell you that this is a real brief story but it's kind of funny uh a friend of mine's band was opening for the makeup um the and uh brendan canty's younger brother james uh was mm -hmm. in the makeup mm -hmm. and my friend's band threw in a musical and then verbal quote from this kind of obscure Discord record, sort of Discord adjacent record by this band, Happy Go Licky, that Guy and Brendan were in before they were in Fugazi. I think that band was absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. I never saw them live, but I was completely obsessed with this one live 12-inch record they put out. It's like six songs. I was completely obsessed with it. And my friend uh, was also similarly into it and like put this quote, from the record, from the music um, and the lyrics into his live set. And James sort of like popped his head up and looked at the stage like, what the just happened? And uh, after the set, uh, James came over to my, my friend and was like, hey, uh, did you just quote Happy Go Licky? And the guy was like, yeah, I really, I really love that record. He's like, you should tell my brother that. Like, send him a fan letter. Like, Ian and Gee get all the fan mail. Like, Brendan never gets anything. Yeah. And uh, so I sent this letter to Brendan, like, you know, essentially saying, you guys should really reissue that record. And, uh, you know, I, I sent it off and didn't really think about it much. And then a couple of years later, like, the, this massive CD of, like, 70 minutes of Happy Go Licky stuff came out, and I was really excited about it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that was that was my, that my my correspondence with Brandon until this project was strictly one way. But Mackay had spoken with um, a number of times over the years uh, covering various aspects of the band. Well, I bring it up only because uh, it's fascinating to me that you, I mean, I 
have corresponded with these folks too over the years and sure they've always been very accessible and uh it's something that i value and, and something i keep in mind whenever uh someone like arcade fire is getting snooty with me uh all of a sudden yeah <laughs> or it's, whoever it's really... you know like just this this notion that like to me the most significant band of of my lifetime will write back to you and give you the time of day uh and not be huffy and puffy about things that has had a profound impact on on me and the fact that I'm sure you've had this experience. If you write Ian a, an email, and I'm not encouraging this, by the way, because he gets enough, but if you write them an email, they will respond to you. Uh, they don't ignore things. Even if they can't help you or don't have time to help you, they will respond. They they view this relationship with their audience, I think, with some degree of gratitude and, and, and certainly grace and dignity and all those things. Like, it's just, uh, I can't stress that enough. And so I wasn't surprised that you gathered them all together and, uh, for these conversations about this record, I wasn't. Sur- I was. I was surprised by the access you had to certain archival recordings that we can get to in a moment, um, <laughs> because I was reading that where you're like Ian's just playing you stuff uh, off of uh, computers or whatever, just like files he has of you know some of these songs in their earliest form. Like, that's remarkable to me. Like you, yeah. That that must have been. Was that surreal for you? Oh my god! Yeah, uh, just as somebody who is been a dc punk nerd since i was 14 years old hearing all this stuff uh that was that was absolutely extraordinary um and and what kind of stuff just for people who haven't yet uh, read about it in the book what kinds of things did you get to hear well there's there were two sort of significant tape archival audio experiences that I, i worked in the book one was uh, when I, we were discussing the song Great Cop, uh, which is a terrific song and is the most hardcore punk-sounding thing they had written in forever. And, you know, hardcore as a genre was not something the band was into. In fact, there was something that they were, like, very obviously moving away from from the moment they, you know, got together. That wasn't part of their their uh, aesthetic blueprint, not really. Um, but Great Cop sounds like a hardcore song, straight up. And so hearing Ian put on this tape of Scoobald, which was this very short-lived band that existed in between the time that Minor Threat broke up and got back together again, and hearing the riff for Great Cop in there was absolutely extraordinary. Hmm. And seeing, you know, hearing him play it with another band and then another band, and none of these other bands... um, 
being all that interested in the song and the song not really going anywhere. And finally, just like, let's, you know, hearing Fugazi figure out what to do with this riff uh, was a fantastic lesson in never, ever throwing anything away. <laughs> if, you're, if you're an artist, like, you just never know. Yeah, when something's going to become useful. Yeah, it's a it's a remarkable story in in the book as well. Uh, you, you tell it well that he he basically tried it with almost every band he was in uh, at some point or another. Yeah, it's, it was a it was that was amazing. Um, the other one, uh, if you don't mind me talking about it, please. Oh, okay. The yeah, the other tape moment that absolutely blew my mind. And I subsequently was like, you know, you really should put that out, was a demo they made at Inner Ear the summer of 1992 of uh, the song Instrument and the song uh, Rend It. Mm -hmm. And they, they were just going into the studio to lay these ideas down. And Ian was like, hey, let me play you these just so you can hear what we were, like where we were that summer before we started uh you know recording with with albini and he plays these two songs and they are unbelievable they're done and there are little things that are different the uh instrument uh ends in a round with ian singing both parts um, in this, uh, you know, row, row, row your boat kind of way that's really extraordinary and powerful. And Rend It, the vocal, is better, I think, than what is on, ultimately is on uh, the record. And that's not to fault the band or uh, Ziantara or Ted, um, but it's just funny that... He said throughout this process, you know, that song always gave me a lot of trouble. Um, just singing it was always like sort of weirdly difficult, especially the acapella parts. And then you hear this demo and it's like, dude, you, you solved it. Like you, <laughs> you nailed it the first time. And seeing him listen back to that was pretty extraordinary because he was like, wow, that is much better than I remember it. And it was just, it's a very, it was a very striking thing uh, seeing these guys look at music they made a very long time ago. So is the version, no, no, the, the version of, uh, the, the, the version of Rendit that you're describing, how far, I guess, how close is it? You're saying it's a better performance, but they yeah, also, it, they did release a prototypical version of the song that uh, on the, on the uh, instrument uh, uh, release. Um, oh yeah, yeah, totally. which is I believe it's if memory. I'm just calling upon my memory here, and it's been a few years since I um, have looked at the liner notes. But as, as I recall, I think he basically uh, formulated a version on, on at home of, of his own. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so the, the one you heard is closer to the album version, but just you feel like a ridiculously strong version. Well, it, yeah, the, the, the full electric, it's using the full electric arrangement, like the, the, the scaled up version that uh, is on the record is very similar to the one on the demo. Guy's vocal performance is just better. I see. It's, it's stronger. You know, they're, they're very cool, cool trills on all the R's and in, in, in all the right places. It's, it's, this is an odd way of describing it, but it's more fun. Like, 
there's uh, the melodrama of that song is tamped down just a little bit mm -hmm. and it's just very cool it, it was really dazzling to hear it and uh you know my inner fugazi nerd was just losing his damn mind hearing this yeah it uh, strikes me that you're a fortunate guy uh it also yeah. <laughs> it also uh but you you know you were working hard on this book i think it also stands to reason just given what they've done uh thus far uh in terms of digging through archives and releasing things that these things will likely see a kind of official release at some point it wouldn't surprise me i think they take you know, this is something that's always sort of struck me about um, Ian's career is that he's always been extremely thoughtful about everything he's done. Mm -hmm. And he's talked about this in, in different interviews that, you know, it's after seeing that, you know, all of these guys are at this one extraordinary cramps show in Washington and, and, uh, you know, much in the, much in the manner that, that fateful sex pistols show in Manchester gave birth to joy division and the buzzcocks and all of these bands in the, in the, um, the Manchester scene in in this, in the late seventies, there's, there's this one cramps show that a lot of these people were at who became the core of the discord, um, DC hardcore scene that they all just sort of went out and started bands after that. And Mackay has always been very sort of thoughtful about the way he's approached, you know, making music. He said, you know, it was never, it was never, all right, we're in a band. It was, can I play bass? Can I play bass, you know, at an acceptable level to be in a band? Can I write a song? Yeah. Can I sing a song that I write? Um, and it's just very sort of step by step by the same notion. The song waiting room is about wanting to be in a band and trying to get a band together and having all these delays and just wanting to get on stage and say what you have to say right now mm -hmm. as soon as possible. Yeah. There's an urgency. There's an urgency within and, him uh, as well. Yeah, absolutely. That, you know, just, you know, and, and he's one of the hardest working human beings I've ever met in my life. It's absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. Um, no, I, that's been my, as, sense, as you are my, well aware. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's my, uh, you know, he's, uh, I can't, it's, I've spoken and interviewed Ian just countless times now. Uh, and I, I can't even keep track of them anymore. Uh, and that comes across, as I say, um, as well. Now, yeah. I, I thought it might be interesting because I want people to read this book. And uh, but I, I'm trying to figure out a way to go through the songs and sure. maybe just describe one brief noteworthy thing. Maybe Shall we try each of them? I, I don't know. How much... I, yeah, no, I'd love to. Let's okay. go for it, man. So why don't we start with Facet Squared? What is something that you, you'd like to convey that you discovered? And again, I don't want to I want people to read the book. So. Joe, I'm trying to be your agent here. Don't give away too much uh, because we want people to read the book. <laughs> just like a little taste of something, maybe. So why don't we start with the first song, Facet Square?
Well, I mean, you know, I want everyone to read the book as well, <laughs> but I'm I'm gonna give away the big the big one about Facet Squared because uh, uh, you know it's the book's been out for a little while, and I, I like I said, I'd like everybody to read it, but I will <laughs> I I'm happy to talk about the thing that I found the most interesting about about this song. I think it's an extraordinary piece of music, and um, it's has that amazing build at the beginning and there's just this sense of you know a a band taking a position like this is where we are now uh this is where this is what we're about um from the lyrics to the fact that it's just this sort of overwhelming track um and you know this sort of declaratory sense in the lyrics that you know, this is these are the positions we're staking out, and this is how we view the world, and it's kind of a statement of purpose, and I love it. But the thing that is is funniest is the title. And when I asked about uh, when I asked Ian about the title, he said, "You know, what do you think it means?" And I gave my answer. He's like, "Oh, that's kind of interesting. Like, that's not bad." He's like, "That's not correct." Um, I'm like, "Well, what's up?" He's like, "Well." The working title for the song was part of the, you know, the choral bit, Flags Are Such Ugly Things, mm-hmm. which spells out facet, F-A-S-U-T. Yeah. But that's not a word, so we just changed it to facet in the title and uh, put squared on there. And, um, you know, that's how we came up with the title. I'm just <laughs> sitting there like, Jesus Christ, I really should have figured that out and i've only lived with this record for 20 plus years and know it like the back of my hand and that never crossed my mind i enjoy um, the fact that he tested you out on it there's a playful trickster streak to ian that comes out every once in a while and i like yeah, i, I mean, like that he what do you he's done it to me where he's like what do you think that means and i'll be i'll do the same thing because you respect ian and you want to try to try to you know, stand toe to toe with him a little bit. And then he'll be like, well, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the thing, something that I, I mean, Albini said this, Steve Albini said this, and I, it's entirely possible he said it on your program, but I remember reading it in, um, on the, uh, electrical audio message board. And I used it, I've used it as a quote in a couple of different places when I've written about the band, um, but something that I, I love about the band that is sort of hard to parse is they're all four of them are incredibly funny people. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And, yeah. and Ian is extraordinarily funny, but he's so dry that it, it's hard to, it's hard to see sometimes. And something that I think was sort of radically revealed by the, by the um, of Fugazi Live series is that their onstage banner is often absolutely hilarious. Yeah. But he's also kind of messing with the audience in a way that the audience like either doesn't appreciate or doesn't get or doesn't find funny. Uh, but with some remove, you and, you know, not being there in the moment, you know, the what is interpreted as being humorless scolds is actually just being kind of funny. 
And yeah, it's it's it, it, when you talk to them, you get that that comes across. Or when you watch even the documentary that Jem Cohen made, there's the, you can tell there's a sense of humor. I'll quickly tell you that Guy and I had a friendly wager on the uh, 2018 uh, NBA playoff series, uh, the Toronto Raptors versus the Washington Wizards. Uh huh. And <laughs> the wager began as kind of like the loser has to get the other person a, a sandwich. Then it became pizza. Then he settled on bagels. He insisted we have to. The, the loser has to send the winner bagels. So the Raptors won the series, and he said, all right, I put your bagels in the mail. I open up my mailbox one day. There's a parcel from Guy. It is a uh, bobblehead of the Washington Wizard player, Otto Porter Jr. <laughs> I don't even know what to do with that. Like, that's just Look, next level. I mean, here here's here's the thing, and there's really no getting around this. Guy is what, maybe eight to ten years older than I am. Yeah. So he was 15 or so in 1979. I was about five. Uh, The Bullets and then the Wizards have been bad for the majority (laughs) of the past 30 years. They've been bad. Sure, sure. 40 years. Yeah, they've been varying degrees of shitty. Yeah. For that entire time. And I think, you know, if if they get even within sniffing distance of a championship, D.C., Virginia, Maryland natives are going to celebrate it, it however possible. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think a bobblehead to a resident of the city that loses a playoff game to the Wizards is completely appropriate. All I'm that saying is, is I was expecting bagels and I got Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, he, you know, he amped it up a little bit. He did. And maybe He did. You know, and uh it is a little rude to live in Brooklyn and not send bagels that's to what a guy I, who lives in Toronto. That's what I was thinking. I, I was thinking Jeez. the same thing. I was really looking forward to it, but anyway. Anyway, yeah, it's they are funny. Uh let's move on to the next song, Public sure. Wit- Witness Program. Yeah, Public Witness Program is great because it's uh, complete fiction and the lyrics just don't reference anything that's real at all. And for years, people thought it was a song about a real thing, that there was like really this government program that like, you know, paid people to stand around and observe and which is, you know, ridiculous. Like, that's not a thing. Um, The irony is that you know, with everybody having cell phones now, 
and everybody recording absolutely everything. And um, especially, you know, if you live in the States, encounters with the police, uh, everybody is now a public witness. And it's just an example of, you know, the their songs age very well, I think, um, because they are not tied to specific political events, even though they may be vaguely referencing things that are very specific. Yeah. Um, there's a universality to them that makes them applicable, you know, 25 years down the line. And that's amazing. Yeah, I, I hear you there. And, and uh, yeah, that that the, the, again, there's that sense of humor, but there's this notion that something sinister is going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, we move on to the uh, the third song on the record, Returning the Screw. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's a magnificent piece of music, but and um, one that you know when I was talking to them, they you know when I was talking to Ian, and he was like, yeah, that song is not a joke. Like mm-hmm. clearly, I was very pissed off about something.
funny part is he kind of couldn't remember this if there was about a specific thing uh so what uh you know whoever pissed him off that week uh has remained obscure um mm-hmm. and but but and that chapter ended up being more about sort of people being mean to just the the undercurrent of misanthropy that was sort of in American indie rock then um seems kind of hilarious in retrospect now because the pendulum has swung so completely the other way yes it's true um, you mentioned that they they encountered their first negative reviews for their last record and i know in the conversation that um i i had and you alluded to uh, i guess a few moments ago where i had ian mckay and steve albini in conversation ian invokes this phrase mean zine there was a mean zine culture that went yeah. on where people yeah. were just kind of trying to tear down everyone yeah um and if anybody is listening to this and has not heard the albini and mckay episode of uh, this program you need to listen to it immediately it is absolutely amazing <laughs> oh and, thanks um, i appreciate that i loved every second and um you know took i distinctly remember like listening to it and like taking copious notes as uh, like i was listening to it for the third time i was like all right i'm definitely using that i'm definitely using that well the first part um, the first part is germane to your book i i i'm a little regretful that uh, i know from st- a statistical point of view anyway that not as many people checked out the second part which i found way more interesting on some level like it, it's less to do with palehead and and in on the kill taker and and sort of uh, those topics, it's way more about political correctness and the the current state of affairs. And I I just found it really fascinating. Yeah, um, it's yeah. The second part is terrific and does get into more of their respective worldviews. And uh, yeah, everybody go listen to it. It's great. <laughs> it's great. Um, but yeah, re- returning the screw is you know it's just sort of. A song about being, you know, humiliated and, and hacked off mm-hmm. and, um, you know, is uh, is a powerful uh, piece of music. But uh, and I, I love it, but I, you know, it's not. Uh, yeah, it's it's I, I think it's I think it's a very good song. It's not a song I think about as much as I think about. You know other songs on the record. I'll put it that way. Although I, think, I do love it, I think there's a. I don't know if I, I believe they were fans. I believe it had an impact on them. This record, there are moments on "In on the Kill Taker" that I think uh, reveal the influence of Slint's Spiderland on this band, and they come and go. And there's not there's nothing direct, but there's just sort of a bit of drama, a bit of dynamic stuff going on that I associate with that Spiderland record. And I believe Ian's a fan. Um, yeah. I mean, those, yeah, that record was absolutely everywhere and in, in underground circles. Uh, and you know, it continues to be, it, um, it really is something else. And yeah, they, Ted nicely, their producer and Don and the guys in the band, you started to use dynamics, a little bit more on this record than they had in the past. I mean, loud, soft stuff has always been part of their thing, especially on stage. It can get, you know, truly extraordinary um, with the drama sort of like heightened and reduced um, that way. And Returning the Screw is, yeah, I think you're right, is a good example of 
using um, using volume in a very cool way, especially in the last minute when it just like crashes back to life. And um, Ian just starts, you know, howling at the back half of it. Yeah. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah. And again, I, I hear that howling and the slint stuff as well. Like it just yeah. out of nowhere, there's these. Yeah. Anyway, it's almost a panic. Uh, it's a it's a rage induced or rather a panic induced rage. It feels like almost. On some yeah. Level. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny. I think on, on Spiderland, it really does sound like a guy legitimately freaking out, um, which is what makes that record so extraordinary um like you know the end of good morning captain still gives me chills and i've listened to that record every couple of months whether i need to or not for a very long time well i think and it also like, damn uh, yeah and I, I do think that and i don't want to dwell too much on slint but i do think sure. they they, they kind of highlighted vocal affectation the downside of it a little bit um totally just by doing so much sort of spoken word and um and sort of matter-of-fact singing, and I hear that on... I feel somewhere within me that that had an impact on on how Fugazi approached songs uh, as, yeah, as they that, went on, too. That's a very cool point, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, we move on to Smallpox Champion. Yeah, Smallpox Champion is a it's a barn burner, and um, it's you know based on the notion. Uh, the lyrics are based on the notion of the smallpox blanket uh, being mm-hmm. given to natives in uh, North America uh, when white people showed up, and um, it's it is it is a song you know written by a guy reading a lot. And um, trying yeah, Guy, to Guy, make that's right. Guy had, re- had read uh, "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee," I believe, right? Yeah, and uh, was sort of vibing off of that. And yeah, it's a it's a it's a burner, and it's one of those songs that I mean, you can sort of test the you can sort of stress test Fugazi songs by or get a reading on a stress test of Fugazi songs by how much they got played live. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the songs that were not very good were quickly dropped from their live set. Now, there are a couple of songs within their catalog that have been rehabilitated and kind of brought back from the grave. Uh, But that doesn't happen too often. And if a song didn't work, it got dropped pretty quick. Yeah. Um, 
there's a song called Polish on Steady Diet of Nothing that I think um, almost everybody in the band dislikes. And uh, I know Brendan absolutely hates it. And we were looking at he, you know, when when I was interviewing them, I he picked up uh, a Steady Diet CD case that was sitting on the table and said, "Wait a minute, what is on this record?" And he sort of looked at it. <laughs> it was like, "Oh yeah, this is all good." And then he's like, "Except for stupid Polish." <laughs> I'm like, "Excuse me." He's like, "Ah." song shouldn't be there and i said you know one of my best friends absolutely loves that song yeah and he said well your friend is wrong that song is terrible <laughs> uh, um, like and they ended up playing it like eight times and right. you can tell that nobody liked this song it right. just didn't it wasn't working right uh but the stuff most a lot of the stuff on kill taker and a lot of the stuff on steady diet that stayed in the set man well speaking of songs that worked and speaking of melodrama we move on to rend it <laughs> You discussed earlier. Is there a f- kind of a, a a fact that you uh, discovered that you can share with us about this song beyond anything you've already said? Um, I, you know, I think it's uh, it's it's one of the ones that was sort of easiest to uh, learn the learn the development of that they played it in embryonic form a couple of times before it got its final shape, and uh, you know. And it, it took it took a little while. Like there there are versions of the song in the live archive, which is really just an extraordinary resource in a lot of different ways. And uh, yeah, absolutely, I agree. Yeah, yeah, it's something else. And you can hear it sort of take shape over time, and that was really fascinating to hear um, this this song in sort of embryonic form with. You know, it's just it's a riff and it's sort of the pieces of the song and the lyrics aren't there yet. And, you know, there's one version where you can hear Guy saying something like blah, 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 blah. (laughs) That's literally that's literally it. Like he's got a couple of ideas. Right. And it's just sort of like marking time until they can figure out what uh, what to do with this thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, every everything has its embryonic state. And uh, and we've like I said, they released they've released some aspects of. 
uh, where this song came from already into the public. So and and the live archive is there as well for anyone to access. So um, yeah, it's a it's that's another standout track for me. Uh, move on to twenty three beats off. Three Beats Off is uh, amazing because it's kind of a complicated song. I don't think it got played that much because it's sort of, I mean, in comparison to other stuff, it, it didn't get, it hasn't been a staple of, of the live set the way that something like Reclamation was. Um, but, you know, the biggest factoid about this song is that it is not about Magic Johnson. <laughs> and absolutely everybody thinks it's about Magic Johnson. Oh, sorry, there Michael. Are. Do you mean Michael Jordan? Because Magic Johnson was number thirty-two. I just I was I went the wrong way. I was thinking of of Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. But there's a story about Magic in this uh, in this song somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's his number was thirty-two. Right. He announced he was HIV positive on November 7th, 1991. Right. His number is 32. Generations of listeners have thought that Ian switched the numbers right. <laughs> uh, to disguise something and, um, you know, wrote this song about, about Magic Johnson. And it's in no way about Magic Johnson. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, I got it confused there too. I just my sports brain, no, 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 my sports brain went to Michael Jordan because yeah. he's in the news right now as we speak. As a matter of fact, uh, for a weird reason. Anyway, I uh, yeah. So this this is in the book. I think people should check out the book to get the full full story. If that it's I, I promise it's worth it. <laughs> it's magical. It's actually it's totally great. Totally another basketball fugazi thing that. It's just surprising connections to basketball with this, yeah, with this band. It, yeah, totally. Um, and this one turned out to be completely false. <laughs> <laughs> Not even remotely true. One of my favorite all-time instrumentals by this band is next, Sweet and Low.
Yeah, it's really something else. It's, you know, I, at some point I say in the book, like, you know, this, it's the only Fugazi song you'd sort of credibly play at a wedding yeah. and have, you know, without people freaking out. And, you know, it's a good example of how instrumentals are a really important part of the Fugazi story. A lot of their songs start out as instrumentals. I can think of a couple of them that might have stayed, that like totally could have stayed or maybe should have stayed as instrumentals and um, been, you know, been perfectly amazing songs. Um, but this one, I think, was the idea was that Joe Lally, who came up with the initial riff, was going to write lyrics to it. And then that just didn't sort of, that sort of just never ended up happening for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And uh, it stayed an instrumental. And it's this beautiful, you know, this beautiful little piece of music that is almost this, you know, lullaby parked into the middle of the record. And it's really something else. Yeah, it really is. And then you wake up from the lullaby to the clatter of Cassavetes. Wow, that was yeah. a good that was a good segue. I'm happy with that yeah, one. That was no, that was beautiful. <laughs> you handled that beautifully. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's this, there's this great fill from, from Brendan that, um, Brendan, I remember credited Ted nicely, uh, for coming up with, he, uh, he, I remember uh, nicely telling me he absolutely loved that song. Um, he heard the Albini demo version of it and was like, this song is, you know, this song is amazing. Um, I want to, I absolutely want to do right by this piece of music. And Brendan said that there was just this very basic drum beat going into the song. And Ted said, no, 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 no. You, you need to work up to it. You know, you should, you know, uh, you know, develop these little fills. So we get something going into this song that's a little more dramatic. And, um, you know, to his lasting credit, Nicely was absolutely right. And the intro to that song is stunning and sets up the drama of that song beautifully. And I, I always thought that was a very good example of, you know, what they were lacking on Steady Diet was that other voice in the room saying, yeah, yeah. yeah this is great. No, you can do that better. And, hey, I have this idea. Why don't we try this? And that just wasn't there for Steady Diet. Yeah. Well, it's, that's, it's a remarkable story because it is, I think, kind of a, I don't know, that's like a legendary part. Of, of a song um yeah it's a it it works great and um it's really it's it, it really sets you up and reminds you that brendan is you know a really extraordinary drummer yes absolutely yeah um yeah i agree and it, to, for what it's worth to this day if i'm ever called upon to sound check drums you know when the sound engineer's like all right just just play the whole kit 
I, this is what yeah. I, this is what I play. I play absolutely. I try to play that part. <laughs> nice <laughs> to the best. How's that work? How's that work out for you? It's fine. It's the whole kit. I get to <laughs> get to play the whole kit. You know, after hitting the individual drums and stuff for a while, they just tell you at some point. All right, just give the whole thing a, a ride, and so that's where I go. That's where my mind do, goes. Do you rock a dinner bell? No, 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 no. I just encountered the dinner bell uh, in Guelph recently when the Mesthetics were here, and uh, that bell has meant a lot to me over the years. It is something else. Yeah, yeah. Now, we've talked, uh, I think, already about Great Cop and just scanning the songs. We talked about instrument as well. So what do you think? Should we move on to Walken Syndrome? Should we bypass bypass Great Cop and go to Walken Syndrome? Sure. Walken's Syndrome is uh, well, Walken's Syndrome is great because of the intro to it and uh, on the master um, for this recording there is a track between Great Cop and Walken's Syndrome that just says chimps yes that is like they they you know they had it as a link track um, just 10 seconds of, uh, of guitar feedback and squealing that legitimately sounds like chimps and, uh, you know, apparently it was called that until like very, you know, very close to the end of this of this album cycle where they just sort of tacked it on to uh, the beginning of Walken Syndrome and, and uh, dropped the title. But I love the fact that for a very long time it was uh, it was called uh, it was the intro was called Chimps. Um, yeah. Walken Syndrome comes from. uh well, I'll just say that Walken Syndrome, for a bunch of reasons, is a title that uh, Guy really regrets because it's not a Greek Guy told me he really regrets because it's not tremendously reflective of really what the song is about and just doesn't really work as as a title and you know references a Woody Allen movie and that's not a great place to <laughs> a great place to be in 2018. No, I, I can that, see that. I can see that. That, as, that aspect is aged poorly. Everything else about the song is aged great. That that aspect, eh, not so much. The only other thing we might want to say is that it is an actual reference to the actor Christopher Walken. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it is yeah. a uh, it is absolutely it is absolutely a reference to one of the great weirdos of our age. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so the next song the penultimate song on the record is Instrument. As I say, I believe we, we've talked about that, unless you have more to say. Um, I think Instrument is, you know, I'm with Ted nicely on this. I think Instrument is a tour de force. Mm-hmm. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. That one is predetermined. That one is 
um, it was great diving into what that song was about and how it related to Washington and how it related to Ian's relationship with his, his peers and, and his friends and just the difference between the way you perceive crime if and you know if you're in a bad neighborhood as an option how that changes your relationship to that neighborhood and yeah it's an extraordinary song about privilege and um it's yeah getting into it in getting into that with him was really just incredible well the final song on this album is uh meaningful to me i don't know how else to put it it's just uh I find it to be one of their most remarkable songs, intricate songs. Um, in a weird way, it's much like Great Cop stands out on this album. I feel like this song stands out like almost apart from this record on some level. It, it feels like it's part of it, but like something else. Uh, the song is called Last Chance for a Slow Dance. I say, and hopefully I'm not putting you in an awkward position where it turns out you hate it because I love it. No, 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 not <laughs> not at all. No, I uh, no. It was a song that I always liked, and I never really appreciated for whatever reason. I never really appreciated it until I wrote this book, hmm. and I think that's the only song on this record that I feel that way about. Um, everything else, I my feelings about these songs did not really change for the most part. I knew what I liked about them. I knew what I didn't like. I certainly learned a lot and learned about how they put, you know, how they wrote songs and, and their process. But last chance is one that I didn't really appreciate until I, uh, got into it, um, a little bit more with them and got into it a little bit more with Ted and really grew to love it. It really is an extraordinary piece of music. And I don't know why I didn't appreciate it 
for as long as I did. I really couldn't tell you. But it's, 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 an, it's an odd one, though. I think it sticks out in the band's catalog. Yeah, it, it really does. And it's, its tone feels very different from what is going on at the re- in the rest of the record. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and part of me always thinks that it would have made like a good one-off single with something else. Uh, and I say that as somebody who's just a huge fan of one-off singles. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I truly love them. And that's not something that, that they really did much of uh, as a band. And, um, you know, I, I, I grew to love it. I think it's, and they, I, th- I, I grew to appreciate what an extraordinary piece of music it is and how beautiful the, um, the outro is where you just have this sort of string, you know, string quartet, you know, wooden instrument effect. It's really gorgeous. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a remarkable thing. And and you've, you've written about all these songs in such an incisive way. I really appreciate your book. Did you get much feedback from the band or anyone that you were concerned about, you know, hearing from? uh, Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, You're welcome. Yeah. I I had a really, um, nice exchange with Guy about it um, who was uh, very kind and very complimentary and that you know and that was great and I've heard from a lot of fans who uh, yeah, not a lot I've heard from a number of fans who, who really appreciated it um, I didn't get any direct feedback from any of the other members of the band which is totally fine I mean mm-hmm. um that's you know these are <laughs> these are extremely busy folks and uh you know part of me is like you know i don't know if i'd want to read about me either so <laughs> you know, i completely appreciate it if uh if they're like no i don't i don't read stuff about myself like that is absolutely understandable in the you know in the, the same manner that you know film directors don't necessarily read reviews um it's uh you know that is once you, once you release something like that into the world a book into the world the relation relate you know your relationship to it is kind of done yeah 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 it's uh yeah. you know it's between the book and the reader from then on in right well where can people learn more about uh, this book uh this 33 and a third book and and yourself joe well let's see um i'm on twitter at, at joe gross um i write for the austin american statesman um on a near daily basis and uh most of what i do can be found there um okay, okay. uh i highly recommend the 33 and a third website which will give you uh details of some sort about their entire catalog and there are some really extraordinary books in there and i highly recommend uh flipping through it and finding records that that you're into um and want to read more about um 333sound.com i believe right yes sir yeah yeah okay and um you know i uh i highly recommend (laughs) i highly recommend the book if you're into the record um i think uh i think there's a lot of fun stuff in it um that uh i i certainly learned a lot about while writing the book and um you know, I talked to some really fun people, and uh, they were all uniformly pleasant and thoughtful and extremely smart. And I think part of the reason that this ended up being sort of more or more oral history-ish than I initially went into it thinking it would be 
is that everybody I talk to is extremely articulate. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, if you're dealing with folks that are this smart, you might as well let them speak for themselves. <laughs> yeah, that comes across. I can I can see I can see that happening as you're writing this book. Yeah, they're, you know, and, uh, you know, and I'm including in there, you know, people like Cynthia Connolly mm-hmm. and Ryan Nelson and um, and Jem Cohen, who, you know, engineered the cover, the sleeve, the first sleeve that he did for the band. And then he did all their subsequent album covers. And mm-hmm. that's sort of a neat little story in itself. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, the album just, title story is, is interesting in itself. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's it's it was just it was an incredible amount of fun to work on. And, you know, hearing these guys be so open and forthright about things they liked and things they didn't like was uh, about this record was uh, absolutely amazing. Well, I urge people to check out this book. As I say, it's In on the Kill Taker by Joe Gross. It's a part of the 33 and a Third series. You can learn more about the album by Fugazi, which we should also tell people to check out. Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> start start there. And if, you know, if, if you find it engaging, there's you know a whole book about it. But definitely start with the record first. Discord.com for more information about Fugazi and, and their amazing records, the greatest band I've ever seen and my favorite band of all time. And Joe, thank you for your contribution to their to their history, and I wish you the best of luck with everything going forward. Oh, thank you so much, man. I love the show, and uh, I'm honored to be on it. Special thanks again to Joe Gross, Discord Records, and Fugazi, all of whom participated in some way, for this, the 421st episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One podcast network and is available on all iOS and Android platforms, and also on things like Spotify, YouTube, and Audio Boom as well. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about and are looking for on any of those platforms, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at vishcreative, or follow me at vishkana. Listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time around the world at cfru.ca or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Also, visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going. It's uh, very much appreciated. For all of you who have pledged at our our Patreon page thus far, please uh, continue to do so, and if you can encourage others to do so as well, hey, why not? That would be great. Thank you. Patreon.com slash Control. Thanks again to Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, and anyone else who really supports this show with in-kind donations and support. It's it's really appreciated, including my friend Jim Guthrie. He lets me use the instrumental version of his song, The Rest is Yet to Come, to end the show each week. You can learn more about Jim and listen to his music at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thanks to you for listening to this show and... uh, And, you know, subscribing to the podcast, downloading episodes, giving it nice ratings and reviews, all that stuff helps spread the word about it. So thank you. I'm going to go. I will talk to you very soon. Goodbye for now.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 